One, welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves as a self-help resource for people who are navigating herpes stigma. On today's podcast episode, I will be interviewing someone who works in the healthcare field. We'll, um, we'll be talking about stigma and we'll be speaking about that from a variety of angles because I think that when we hear stigma, we have this idea um basically that comes from the context of how it relates to us so this podcast being primarily um, people living with herpes right so herpes stigma even from that angle has a bunch of different types of definitions one could be stereotyping one could be just a sense of judgment one could be uh, that people who have herpes aren't safe to have sex with or they're not cautious with their partners and what Kimberly here is going to be uh, doing with us here is just like guiding us through not guiding us through but just talking about stigma it's just like an open discussion really about stigma and I'll start with the question you know what is stigma and how do you see it in your workplace of course after you have had the opportunity to introduce yourself um, but yeah overall these this series of podcast episodes here and the notes that I'm taking is me just collecting information to be able to speak to the healthcare field on behalf of the people who I've served from the patient perspective uh, and be able to navigate the communication in a way that can um, maximize the efficiency of which a patient is approaching a provider and a provider a patient. So uh, just to give you a little background, this started because one day I was in the Planned Parenthood and I saw two statistics and I don't remember which was which, but 72% of patients don't initiate conversations about sex with their provider and then 68% of providers don't initiate conversations about sex with their patient and it could be the other way around, but I remember those two numbers, those two statements and I wish I would have taken the picture but that got me thinking just over the last six years interviewing people um, what I found is that there's some discomfort about not herpes not STIs but there's discomfort with talking about sex and that just isn't from a provider perspective but it's also the patient perspective so um, I met you at the ISWISH conference in St. Louis uh, in early March uh, ISWISH is the International Society for the study of women's sexual health. You got it. Yes. All right. <laughs> I'm going to dial back on my talking now, and I'm going to ask you to just introduce yourself with your title, how long you've been in the field, and then we can start with that question, what is stigma? Excellent. Thank you so much for inviting me on to your very cool and very informative program. I, I looked into you. I know, I know what you do. It's very cool. My name is Kimberly Resnick Anderson, and I am a certified sex therapist. Uh, I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I am an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine. In my role as an assistant professor, I teach medical students how to speak with patients about sexual issues. So you are preaching to the choir today uh, I, I've been a sex therapist for 30 years, since the early 90s, and one of my 
you know, consistent missions has been to destigmatize and depathologize sexuality in general, um, help couples talk about it in their relationships, help individuals understand it better internally, and primarily to help physicians initiate conversations about a wide range of sexual health topics with patients because there's lots of research suggesting that patients want to talk about sex with their doctors, but that doctors are uncomfortable for a wide variety of reasons. If you're interested, I can list some of them. Yeah, yeah, let's let's hear some of those. Okay, so um, when surveyed, there have been studies done on this. When surveyed, the number one reason doctors state for not discussing sexuality with patients is that they don't have time. So I call bullshit on that, but that's consistently the number one uh, complaint. Um, another uh, common explanation from doctors about why they don't bring up sexual issues is because A, they either don't think it's relevant, they don't think it's important, or they don't believe that very many of their patients are going to endorse having a sexual health concern, none of which are true. They also claim that um, they uh, don't want to offend anyone. In case someone is offended or uncomfortable, they're worried that it may come across as creepy. They worry that they may get aroused especially male doctors, especially young male doctors. They worry if they start asking questions about sexual health that they might, for example, get an erection. They worry about arousing their patient. They worry about being um, accused of sexual harassment or inappropriate sexual behavior. Given today's climate, a lot of doctors say, I don't want to say anything about sex because I don't want one of my female patients to, you know, accuse me of being sexually inappropriate. Can I, um, that is very interesting to me. And what's interesting here is because I work as a male urological teaching associate at Oregon Health and Sciences University, and I teach medical students to give genital exams. And I don't have medical experience, but I have people experience. Yeah, and yeah. I recognize that a big part of that job is really just not being creepy. So I'm like standing there, I lift my gown up and I'm like touching my penis, palpating my penis, manipulating my penis in a way that is, it's clinical, it's not sexual. The context right. isn't right. sexual. So I find it easy for me to do that job. But I guess thinking about it now, that professional experience, um, the, the doctor, uh, or clinician having to talk about sex brings sex into it instead of the clinical perspective, right? And that's their fear. But if they, once I sort of reframe it for them, it starts to feel less provocative. Um, I tell them, you know, a breast is the same as an elbow and a penis is the same as an earlobe. When you're in the doctor's office, it's just a body part. It's not an erogenous zone, right? Like how you would think maybe outside of the doctor's office. Other doctors 
worry that um, they might trigger someone who has a history of sexual assault. We, we focus now on trauma-informed care. Um, some doctors feel like they don't have the credibility to be discussing sexual issues. What if, for example, they're a virgin themselves? What if the patient asks them a sexual question and they don't have the answer to it or the frame of reference? What if they, if their patient is uh, openly gay and they have a religious belief that causes them to believe that homosexuality is sinful? There's, you know, I could give you a hundred examples um, of why a doctor might feel uncomfortable. They also feel like even if the patient does endorse a sexual health concern, that they're not going to know how to treat it. So why open that can of worms, right? I don't want to ask you if you want a steak if I don't have a steak to serve you, right? Um, and a lot of them feel like even if they ask and a patient does confirm or identify a sexual health concern, that not only will they not know how to treat it, but that there's no treatment available uh, because they're not up to date on all the innovations in sexual medicine, of which there are many. We could have a whole nother show about that. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why doctors are reticent to go there. Uh, also, they don't receive proper sexual medicine training in their medical school experiences. So I uh, am an advocate of incorporating sexual health curriculum into graduate medical education. And I've had to fight tooth and nail just to get a couple of hours with the students and the students can't get enough of it. They're like chomping at the bit because sexuality is a core component. One might say a central component of our overall well-being. And our culture uh, stigmatizes sex and pathologizes sex. Um, so there are a lot of societal messages that uh, deter people from discussing sexual health. And doctors are humans, nurses are humans, therapists are humans. And unless they're given permission and educated at, around the benefits of discussing sexual health, they're just not gonna do it. So yay you, yay me. Yeah, we are definitely going to stay in touch. Uh, and we could probably continue multiple hours of conversations um, and also get stuff done because what you're speaking to is one of the things that uh, I'm putting together some sort of a proposal for funding to be able to give healthcare providers practice taking a sexual history, delivering right. a diagnosis, and also giving people guidance to disclose their status. I have a whole protocol that I use with the medical students. Oh, yeah. Well, we fit it. Yeah, we, we'll work around, together. You know, how do you talk about it? What are the phases of sexual response? What are the components? of sexual identity oh, yeah. what are the classifications that need to be made in order to to create an appropriate treatment plan what are the prognoses based on what the different issues are is it lifelong is it acquired is it situational is it global is it organic is it psychogenic all of these things are teachable and you know change people's lives mm-hmm um, a question that I have revisiting the not wanting to offend people. Mm -hmm. um, 
I work with medical students and I see how overwhelmed they are with having to know so much and wanting to get the diagnosis right in their standardized patient programs, their exams. And it seems like one wrong move, such as misgendering, perhaps not asking pronouns or saying the wrong thing can completely disrupt their ability to fully treat the patient. So what is the balance between us as patients, you know, asking a provider to be able to treat us and then also uh, expect them to have this high standard of social awareness of, you know, doing something as little as introducing themselves by their pronouns or um, asking a history taking question in a way that is politically correct versus, you know, what might be just the quickest and most simple way of getting the information. I think that's the dilemma. I think that's why healthcare providers avoid it. They don't want to go there. They don't want to risk offending someone. They don't want to step on a landmine that they might not be able to survive. So it's easier to just ask about the symptoms that are bringing them in, right? Um, Yeah, and I think we can't blame doctors who haven't received proper training. This is not innate or intuitive, especially in our culture, which is such a sex negative, pathologizing culture when it comes to sexuality. Our Puritan roots still loom high. Um, And, you know, if a doctor doesn't know what the phases of sexual response are or what phase of sexual response Viagra treats, right? I see doctors who prescribe Viagra for premature ejaculation when Viagra is, uh, you know, it it affects the arousal phase, right? It's it's a vascular, right? It brings blood flow. Um, So if you can't expect a doctor to know if they haven't been trained or received appropriate sex education. And as I said, doctors get very little sexual health training in medical school and residency. Even doctors who specialize in fields that you would think would provide a lot of sexual health material, like a urologist, right? You work, you work in that area, OB-GYNs, um, you know, primary care. Um, I worked at a hospital system in the Midwest before moving to California. And I went and introduced myself to the chief of urology and said, you know, I wanted to let you know I'm here, I'm available. I ran a center for sexual health at a hospital in the behavioral health division. And he said, why would my patients need a sex therapist? And he was serious as a heart attack, Courtney. He looked at me like I had three eyeballs. And he was like, why would my urology patients need a sex therapist? And I was like, wow, I have some serious work to do, you know, mm-hmm. ended up eventually incorporating sexual medicine training into urology residency, into OB-GYN residency, into psychiatry residency. But you name an area of medicine, cardiology, uh, neurology, I mean, you pick one, oncology, there is a component that will strongly correlate to sexual health and function. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I was looking around for my water bottle. I didn't mean to make you stop. Oh, like, no, I didn't know if someone was at your door. <laughs> well, no, no, we're good. Um, I do have a question. So you brought up sex negativity, which I find to be an interesting wording, because one of the things that I've seen is that I don't think we live in necessarily a sex negative society, but more of a sex avoidant society. Okay. Uh, for instance, when you went to the chief of urology and you wanted to talk to him about sex therapy, he's like, well, why are we need sex therapy? It's not, that to me isn't necessarily negativity. That's more of an avoidance of like, I, I may, maybe not realizing the connectedness of sexuality and in, in that, in his world, like he yep. just may be avoiding of it all together and looking at what you mentioned about fear of arousal or fear of sexual harassment and this was a male we're talking about here too so could this have been just his avoidance of saying the wrong thing or offending someone or getting aroused or arousing a patient a hundred percent I think there is avoidance I also think there is negativity excuse me I also think there is negativity I think it's getting better and we've come a long way but we have a long way to go okay. I mean the way parents talk or don't talk about sex with their children the way parents respond if they find their children exploring their own bodies right that's dirty wash your hands you know pray pray to God for forgiveness those are overtly negative messages that's not avoidant that's that's straight up shame and i hear every day day in day out 30 years stories memories of kids receiving these sort of you know overtly negative messages around natural healthy exploration mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right so now we're getting into a um territory that I didn't think we'd go into, but now I'm curious about exploring. How much of the sex avoidance, sex negativity is on our education versus our home environment versus our experience? That's a great question. Um, They're all significantly informative and impactful. In fact, if you were here with me in my office, I could point you to a a whiteboard that I have where I literally draw this out. I talk about the biological barriers, the social barriers, and the psychological barriers that can undermine one's sense of sexual self-esteem, desire, ability to have an orgasm, ability to become aroused, ability to feel satisfied you you said you said biological social and what was the third one psychological psychological okay sorry about that no worries and the way i explain it is depending upon your age your gender your health status your culture your family background uh and and your exposure to to sex ed all of these mixed messages are going to be competing with each other the example i give is let's just take a 16 year old catholic boy 
raging hormones, right? Lots of sexual energy in his body, getting spontaneous erections all throughout the day. But he's taught by his parents and by the teachers at his school who are nuns that having sex outside of marriage is a sin. That masturbation is a sin because you're wasting potential eternal souls, right? You're spilling your seed. (laughs) And so uh, what is he going to do? He has to make a decision. He has to reconcile. Is he going to give in to his sexual impulses and then be afraid that he's going to go to hell? Or is he going to honor the beliefs, the religious teachings, the messages that he's getting and be, you know, irritable and grumpy because he has no sexual outlet? So I could give you 10,000 different scenarios where these different facets of sexual uh, messaging, these different components are going to compete with each other and cause conflict. Mm-hmm. Right. What if you believe that it's your duty to have sex with your spouse, but you have sexual pain? What if you don't trust your spouse, um, but if you don't have sex with them, they're going to leave you and you're financially dependent on them? I mean, I can give you thousands of examples of how we have to make choices every day about our sexual values and expectations of our partner and the the inputs the messages that imprinted our notions about sex mm-hmm. it gets very confusing and very complicated um and that's what i do i unpack that with people okay and help them sort of make peace with their own sexual story understand their sexual development what were the positive and negative influences on their sexuality and their sexual development and um, help them find some peace and release shame if they have uh, an orientation that they are uh, uncomfortable about or a kink or some kind of fetish or uh, whatever it may be, I help them sort of make friends with the reality of their arousal template. Okay. So you answered a question I was going to ask, which was about what you do as a sex therapist. So that was super useful. And I want to move forward with uh, talking more about the kink and fetishes and um, the BDSM community, non-monogamy community, um, and some of what I believe uh, those communities, what we can learn from those communities and apply Mm -hmm. in general. But before we get there, I would like to know that based on biological, social, and psychological, um, means of, wow, I didn't write down the, (laughs) so I wrote those three things down and like was wrote stars, but, um, just call them influences, influences. Perfect. So of these three influences, where would probably the most useful and effective intervention need to take place biologically, socially, or psychologically in order for us to have an impact um, on the bigger picture of how sex is seen uh, between the patient and provider? It's 
all of them. It's a synergistic, holistic uh, package. It depends on the person. It depends on their health, their age, their gender, their values, their sexual preferences. Um, so there's a lot of social stigma for someone who uh, engages in what one might consider an unconventional sexual lifestyle. There's there's internal psychological uh, or emotional feelings about it. There's secrets. There's, you know, nobody can know this about me. There's shame. Why can't I just get an erection through normal means? Why do I have to, you know, have a shoe involved or a diaper or, um, you know, a whip? You know, they just, they, they feel sometimes like freaks, sometimes the built kind of freak, or you mean like, because <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing freak and I think about that in two different ways. Right. So there's fry your, fly your freak flag proudly, freaky in the bedroom with a positive connotation. Um, but those aren't the people coming for counsel with me. It's the people who feel like freaks in society, who feel different, who feel stigmatized or marginalized or pathologized. There are, there are however many million individuals out there enjoying their kinks conflict-free. They're not my patients. I'm treating the people who have some kind of conflict or consequence as a result of their arousal template that they need help managing. Okay. Okay. Um, now going into where we were starting to go with uh, like kink, BDSM, uh, one thing that I've learned through running my nonprofit, uh, I speak to a lot of people who have mostly sexual shame, particularly not on the surface, it's because of their diagnosis. But when you ask enough questions, you see that there's something underneath that, uh, like their relationship to sex mostly and what i'm finding is that in the kink and bdsm community that there's a lot of opportunity for healing through exploration of sex in ways that i don't think i've ever been taught sex could be and yep. now i'm seeing that there's sort of this throupling and when i say throuple i mean three-way coupling of yep. sex intercourse and pleasure so yep. my question to you is um when we look at kink and BDSM, you know, pleasure is the central thing, but it's not always sex. It's not always intercourse, but in this space, there's a healing that can take place. And my question to you is um, just given the context of, I know people who found healing around their sexual issues, concerns, traumas, through kink and BDSM. Can you speak a little bit to how that helps or how that's therapeutic at all? Absolutely. And I have found it to be, you know, liberating and therapeutic for thousands of my patients. Um, there's a, a freedom, a, a liberation in um, being genuine and authentic about what floats your boat. Um, there's also a, an opportunity to play with dynamics, you know, to play with power, 
to play with, you know, regression to um, trust someone so much that you're basically putting your lives in their hands. There's something really powerful about that. This is making me think that there's so much more to this than just sex, but there is like a psychology yes psychology the psychological component here that's right so so right i i treat a lot of sex workers i treat a lot of uh men who frequent sex workers uh who go to you know uh dominatrices um and they don't even need to have an orgasm to feel uh, a, a powerful release because it's about the relationship and um, sort of releasing aspects of your identity. It doesn't have to be even overtly sexual. I think a lot of people imagine there's there's lots of overt sexual activity going on. Sometimes it's just um, presence. It, Presence, uh, attunement is what I call it. Um, what is attunement? Attunement is when another person is uh, aware of your mental state and emotional needs in a way that is intuitive and extremely uh, protective and restorative. Okay. The way the way a mother attunes to an infant. Thank you. Thank you for that explanation. Yeah. Okay. I, I treat a man who pays a woman to tie him in a chair and leave him facing the corner. And she leaves the room. And he sits and stares at the wall. And it's the, and he weeps because it's so powerful. Mm. And so these are the kinds of things I can see why doctors might be uncomfortable with how sex you know it, it's actually intercourse when they ask about sex they're really asking about intercourse because this once is not we, the point yeah and then once we get further into it we get into sex and sexuality and that more all-encompassing aspect of identity and then we get into pleasure so this man being tied up facing a corner in the chair and then left alone who's weeping that could be way more than this doctor signed up for absolutely um, and i don't expect doctors to be sex therapists or even therapists but i do expect them to be able to ask the basic questions and i can tell you what those are if you yeah what know. are some of them you don't have um, to give them all to me but what are yeah, some of those questions um, i want them to be able to ask the basic questions to assess whether or not a referral to a therapist or a sex therapist is indicated. I don't expect them to be the sex therapist. I expect them to, to provide access to or make a referral to someone who can address a patient's sexual health concerns in a productive and professional way. So there are when doctors do ask about sex, Courtney, they tend to ask about two things, contraception and safe sex or, or risk for STI. That's it. That's all they ask. 
occasionally they'll say, who do you have sex with, men, women, or both? That's, that's like an upgrade. Sex is more than contraception and risk. What about satisfaction? What about, are you comfortable with the amount of libido that you have? Do you trust that you're responding in the way that you want or that you should be? Um, are you able to feel satisfied, you know, with, are you having orgasms that feel good? Are you not having orgasms? Do you want to be having orgasms and you're not, right? Um, do you have any conflict about any of your erotic interests or fantasies? These are the questions that are important to patients. And, you know, there are not a lot of doctors asking these questions. Mm -hmm. And patients wouldn't know to bring these kinds of things up, right? So they is, would there, not. is there because any... Thing that yeah. we can give to patients who might hear this and think, you know, I actually am having trouble in the bedroom. I don't know how to communicate it, but I want to initiate this conversation. Who should they talk to and what do you recommend uh, they do to start that conversation? Well, it's the doctor's responsibility to bring it up. The onus shouldn't be on the patient. But often the onus is on the patient because the doctors don't bring it up. So something simple a doctor could do is just um, open the door to a conversation about sex. Do you have any sexual health concerns? And if the patient says, no, I'm good, okay. At least they know that it's discussable. I have a quote on my wall. It says, what's mentionable is manageable. It's my very favorite quote. It was actually a quote from Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Um, what's mentionable is manageable. So patients don't bring it up because they can tell that doctors are uncomfortable or don't care or they don't trust that the doctor would know what to do with it or be willing to have the conversation. So just setting a precedent and saying, hey, um, you know, do you have any sexual health concerns? If you ever do, let me know. They're, they're sending a message. This is mentionable in this room. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of doctors don't and won't. And so it does become the burden of the patient to bring it up. And that's not an easy thing to do. Now, we talk about concerns. If you have any sexual health concerns, when I hear that from the patient perspective, I'm thinking, oh, I don't have any STDs. I don't have any burning when I pee. Uh, uh -huh. We don't think about our pleasure, our pain. We, we immediately just go there. So uh, what else can we be thinking about in addition to uh, STIs or pain when a doctor does initiate a conversation about sex? Like how can we... Function. function function okay how are you comfortable with your um you know with with your erections do you feel like your erections are your erections firm enough for penetration do you have trouble getting or maintaining an erection um you know do you ever feel frustrated by um you know the timing around your orgasm do you have do you have uh sexual pain um, are you getting wet? Do you lubricate? Um, 
you know, these sorts of questions. And you can say, you know, these are the phases of sexual response, desire, arousal, orgasm, and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. I have a two-minute elevator pitch, two-minute elevator, you know, speech that doctors can use to communicate a lot in a very efficient amount of time. Can, can I offer um, your contact information, website resource, uh, resources. Okay. Well, at the end of the episode, I want you to be sure to say those and then I'll be sure to include them in the show notes. Cause this is, this is really useful. And while I came here thinking I was just going to be jotting down notes for survey purposes, this is actually a very smooth flowing podcast episode. And I want to be mindful of our time. I know you said 50 ish minutes. It's five forty-five. Uh, Pacific time. So, how much more time do we have so that I can manage the rest of our time together officially? Uh, we have about five to seven minutes. Perfect. Okay. Apologies for interrupting, but I definitely okay. want you to be able to add in um, your contact information. Okay. Good. Um, something that I wanted to mention while you were talking, it had me thinking about uh it it keeps going back to the discomfort and fear of saying the wrong thing because Mm -hmm. that's a very real fear and um you said you have the two minute elevator speech which i want to allow for us to link uh for people to contact you i don't know that you should just give that away um (laughs) because that seems like very critical information but uh saying things in a way or how do we like feel out for a patient's receptiveness to being asked things about self-lubricating? Um, is it just the language that we use? Like I would say to a patient, well, hey, are you getting wet? Right. You know, versus, hey, are you self-lubricating? And then right. when they ask, what right. do you mean? So I think that's a little tricky because I get that question a lot. Do I use colloquial terms? Do I use slang terms? Do I use professional you know, kind of formal medical terms? Do I refer to body parts? You know, do I do I say vagina, vulva, clitoris? Do I, you know, some doctors will say, how are things going down there? <laughs> oh, well, doc, uh, I'm, ta- I'm having regular bowel movements, if that's what you mean, right? <laughs> right, and so when you say something like down there, you're sending the message that it's not that, that, that there's something dirty or, you know, that, that, that it's taboo. So what I recommend is that doctors use, you know, formal terms and then encourage the patients to use whatever language they're comfortable with. So a guy might say to me, um, I, lately I can't get a hard on. And then I'll say, tell me more about your erection problems. And then they'll say, well, I don't have morning wood anymore. And then I'll say, when did you start not waking up in the morning? Right. So, so I keep it professional, but they can use whatever terms they want. Got it. Yep. That's, that's very, I mean, that makes sense. And that feels very practical to be able to do. Um, So it's just really a matter of, we gotta we gotta initiate this conversation. We have we to be able to initiate to initiate the conversation. It is it is uh, like a a national health 
you know, our sexual health impacts our, our mood, our anxiety, our pain level, quality of our sleep, the quality of our relationships, our overall self-esteem. And I treat, I somewhat specialize. I have a lot of specific interest areas, but one of the things I enjoy, excuse me, one of the things I really enjoy treating are sexless marriages or sexless relationships. And you'd be surprised how many couples there are who have no sexual life, no shared sexual life. And they don't know how to talk about it. They know how to bring it up. I'm so sorry. I just did that, but I got excited because I'd had an interview right before speaking to you with a woman who's been celibate in a marriage for the last 10 years. The first two years they tried to have sex, but then she caught him having sex with men. And then that was what made her realize what was going on in this relationship. The marriage went on for 10 years after that. And then when she found out he was having sex with women, he was uh, finding women on Craigslist and all kinds of ways, she ended up filing for divorce. And now, after that relationship, she's got libido now. She said that she just wasn't sexually active. So I'm thinking about that, and I'm like, oh, she should have seen a sex therapist. 100%. But, oh, okay, that that was it. That was just why I made the face. I mean, y'all should have seen how excited I just was. Like, I pointed, I, my eyes got big and everything. Um, but it, it really helps me to have a much better understanding now of what a sex therapist does. And also, um, so much of what you shared here gives me much more insight of, because like, I... I I have empathy for the doctors, the clinicians, the healthcare providers that people are seeking out for uh, various aspects of sexual dysfunction. And I'm just like, ah, you know what people are saying? There's gotta be some, there's gotta be more going on here than I had a bad doctor. Because what I learned from my last interview with Dr. Lourdes was maybe you shouldn't talk to a family physician in as much detail as you, uh, about sex and uh, STIs as you would someone who specializes in or sees that more. A family care physician doesn't necessarily deal with that often, so there may be a little bit of unexpected feedback uh, from that. So here I've learned about um, not only what a sex therapist does, but uh, looking at how sex negativity and avoidance play a role, looking at the dynamic of uh, potential sexual harassment and being offensive and fear of arousal in either direction. And the fact that doctors just don't talk, on the surface, don't talk to patients about sex because of time. Now, knowing that talking about sex will lead to, uh, from intercourse to sex, to pleasure, to sitting in a corner tied up and, you know, being left in a room. Yeah, from that perspective, maybe time can be seen as an excuse, but to understand the underlying uh, reasons for that is really helpful for me moving forward and navigating this conversation further. And we looks like we've got like one more minute before we're at that seven minute mark. So uh, Kimberly, I would like for you to please let me know how people can find you, connect with you, find your work. You did mention before we started that you have a podcast. I want you to be able to tell me about that as well. And you and I are going to be in touch. I look forward to that. We are definitely, uh, have a lot of shared goals. 
Oh no, no, I want that contact info. Oh, I thought you were I thought that was your exit. <laughs> no, no, I'm happy to talk about how people can get a hold of me. Yeah. Uh, I have a website, it's just my name, Kimberly Resnick Can you spell that for me? Sure. K I M B E R L Y R E S N I C K and then Anderson A N D E R S O N dot com. My website has lots of free content. Um, I have a sex IQ quiz people can take on there. People I love have, quizzes. I have a bunch of videos. I have blogs. I have a link to my podcast. My podcast is called Sex Savvy, S-A-B-V-Y. And I have 26 episodes that um, explore a wide range of sexual health concerns. Um I offer free 15-minute phone consultations, so people can call at uh, 818-334-5811, or they can contact me through my website, KimberlyResnickAnderson.com. There's a, uh, a box to send an inquiry, and then I uh, respond. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to, to talk again and... Um, see what we can do together, how we can collaborate to help both patients and healthcare providers. Thank you so much, Kimberly. I'm very thrilled to have met you and for us to have been able to make this work, especially so soon. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your expertise, your experience. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll be in contact soon. Sounds great. Thanks for coming up to me at the conference and introducing yourself. Oh, for sure. I got to be outgoing in this field. Uh, closed mouths do not get fed. <laughs> Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Bye. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to, and of course, donate to this organization. Um, if you found this podcast to be valuable and you are connected to anybody who can use this information, please share it with them. Uh, this wasn't herpes specific, so y'all can share this podcast episode. I know, you know, there's some hesitance because of stigma, maybe not wanting people to see you affiliated with a herpes related organization or resource, but this is really useful. Like this is beyond uh, herpes. This is more into sex and sexuality and our overall health. And like we just talked about, you know, we always say sexual health is mental health. And here we have uh, our sexual well-being being linked to our psychology. So you got that to run with. If anybody start questioning you about why you listen to this podcast. All right. Um, I hope that y'all continue to support the show, continue to listen, and yeah, I will catch y'all on the other side. Uh, Kimberly's contact information will be linked in the show notes if you are someone who wants to reach out. Um, she's offering those 15-minute free calls to just get an idea of what you might need, and who knows, like you might be able to change some things that you didn't even know uh, were issues for yourself. So I encourage you to check that out, check out her website. Kimberly Resnick Anderson.com. And I will see y'all on the next episode.